Thank you, worship team. Good morning. My name is Joe. I'm on staff here at Real Life Ministries, and uh, so glad to be with you this morning as we continue a conversation on gratitude, the last lost art of gratitude. And uh, Justin started us off last week talking about this and uh, how we can uh, really embrace Thanksgiving and, and, and how we go about doing that. And this morning, I get to share with you uh, part two of that, uh, um, this topic on gratitude and thanksgiving and really uh, i hope this morning to do a couple things uh with you um at the end of this uh my, my aim is that we walk out of this place uh with a renewed uh vision for what gratitude looks like in our lives a, a biblical vision for gratitude in our lives uh, we're going to unpack uh, here a statement that Paul makes in a letter that he wrote. We'll learn about that in a minute. Uh, but in it, he makes this statement that you might have heard before. You maybe have seen the, the verse on a wall somewhere um, uh, or a, a decorative plate or something. But it's a, it says, in all things, give thanks. In all circumstances, give thanks. Depending on your English translation, something like that. About in everything that we ought to give thanks. And we read something like that. And when we read it in isolation, it can seem um, at first like, yeah, okay, Paul, sure. But the moment we just stop and sit in that idea and we unpack what it means to give thanks in all circumstances, the reality of the hardships and struggles in life punch us in the face and we go, yeah, but Paul, really? Really? And then, how do we do that? How do we do that, Paul? So my goal is we're going to share some stories. Uh, we're going to unpack the Bible a little bit. We're going to do some history, which is always fun for me. And, uh, and by the end of it, I hope that we can walk out of this place um, really with uh, just a, a, a renewed, a recaptured vision for what it looks like to have uh, biblical gratitude. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And, um, and we're going to start out like this. You see, when I was a kid growing up, um, I used to love art. Um, well, I still love art, but, but I used to, to draw all the time. And when, when I was in elementary age, um, I, I was pretty good at drawing, uh, good enough and interested enough that my parents got me in after-school programs for drawing and things like that. And, and I loved uh, drawing. I, I wanted to be an artist, but the problem was, and one of my biggest regrets, is that I never really put a lot of effort into it. Um, I, I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. And, and I had somewhat of talent. Like I loved to doodle and I can draw pretty well, but I needed to actually put effort into that skill to actually become something. You know what I'm talking about, right? As a kid, I, I never had dreams of like, you know, sports. As some kids like, I want to be an athlete. Like you can't be built like a skeleton at Halloween and think sports is going to be in your future. That's just not the reality. So drawing, like I love drawing and, and I always envisioned being an artist, but I never put the effort into it. And, and, and I kind of regret that. Um, that I always think like, gosh, if I would have just put a little bit more into that, may, maybe this could have been different and, and, and I could have learned and, and been better at this. But I always loved art. And one of my favorite um, painters, one of my favorite artists, you might know this person, his name is Norman Rockwell. How many of you know the name Norman Rockwell? 
Yes, he's an early American uh, 1900s. He painted in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s. He died in 78, the year I was born. Um, but he was, he was a, a quintessential American painter. And he was famous for painting um, um, uh, uh, paintings about American life. And, and just the, the fun and the serious. He, he, he did a lot. He just depicted early, you know, 1940, uh, 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 19, you know, 50, 1960. 60s American life. He, he's most famously known, if, if, you, if you've seen it, if you, might, if you don't know the name, you've seen the paintings, I'm sure of it. You might have even seen it because he uh, was famous for his paintings being on a magazine publication called the Saturday Evening Post. And his, his paintings would be featured on the covers uh, for this magazine distribution. And, uh, and they just were widely popular. Um, and he really, he really did an amazing work in his paintings to really capture um, the, the heart and, and the ideals of what it looked like in American culture and American life in these, in these early decades. Um, and uh, in 1942, he was commissioned to paint four paintings, and these were called the Freedom uh, Series, the Freedom Series. And in these uh, paintings, he was depicting certain aspects of freedoms that were inspired by Theodore Roosevelt's uh, speech that he gave. And so after the speech about freedom, and uh, they commissioned Norman Rockwell to paint uh, some paintings. And one of these paintings in this series is one that you've probably seen before, I bet, um, or at least a depiction of this. And this painting is called freedom from want and this is what it looks like i mean have you seen this picture or a variation of it a lot of pop culture sometimes plays on this and uh, with different people but but this is the freedom from want painting that it gave and and many of you are like oh okay that style of painting that i recognize that that's norman rockwell um and uh, and so here we have in this painting the 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 typical you know 40s uh, uh thanksgiving dinner right the thanksgiving dinner that that we're all about to eat and and uh, you know, as much as my parents tried to depict this, it never really looked like this, right? Where you, you know, you have this giant, wonderful turkey, you have everybody coming together and they're smiling, all the family. And, you know, my house, it's, sometimes it was smiling, sometimes it was fighting. Well, you know, my mother wanted this picture. She really got it. Um, um, but this was kind of like what set that tone for the Thanksgiving dinner and it influenced a lot of American culture of, of how we actually celebrate this holiday of, of us coming together and gathering around the table and friends and family and loved ones and celebrating a big turkey and and, uh, and everybody's smiling and everyone's happy and my parents tried this. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it, it, it didn't. Um, um, but one thing uh, that was interesting is that when I first got married uh, to Jane, uh, um, this was years ago, and uh, I started attending Thanksgiving dinners at her family's house. And they did this thing that my family never did. Um, we never never did this, but her family did it. And it was interesting. Um, before they, they do a prayer, so all the family gets together, they have a very traditional, you know, they try to do this. Um, um, experience, but but before we eat, before we say prayer, everyone goes around and shares what they're thankful for. The, does anyone else do this? 
in your family. Okay, a few of you. I never, we never did that growing up, it, but, but it was an interesting experience. So everyone in the family is going around and they're sharing what they're thankful for. And, and it's a wonderful, wonderful practice. I highly encourage that you, you do it if, if you don't already. Um, but I, I remember in, in any time you are in environments like this, uh, whether it's with your family, maybe it's a church setting or something like that, and you ask people, what are you thankful for? There's usually kind of a, a grouping of ways that people give thanks when they're asked that question. What are you thankful for? Um, and, and we hear things like, I'm thankful for my health, my health, that, that I'm, I'm doing well, I'm healthy, or that my family's healthy. I'm thankful. I'm super thankful for that. Uh, we hear things like, I'm thankful for, um, I got a roof over my head, you know, I'm thankful for my home and that I've got a place to sleep and, 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 and rest well and, and, and safety. I'm thankful for that. We hear things like, I'm thankful for this food that I get to eat and share it, you know, and, and, you, and you hear your thankfulness like that. And those are all just super worthy things to be thankful for. So amazing blessings that, that we can be thankful for. But in the midst of that, do you see the undercurrent that's happening? When, when we offer thanksgiving in these ways, oftentimes the thanksgiving is centered around me, about what's happening to me or the situations I find myself in, the ways in which I am blessed. And again, not wrong to be thankful for those blessings. Certainly, I don't want to paint that picture. But there is an undercurrent. If that's all that we offer thanks for, we run the risk of missing altogether the biblical vision for thanksgiving and gratitude. What does the Bible mean when it tells us to give thanks? What is it about? And so I hope to, this morning, like I said, recapture that, that vision for biblical gratitude and thanks, thankfulness. Um, I've been a disciple of Jesus for uh, 23 years, not a long time, um, but been following Jesus, trying to pattern my life after Jesus as I've studied scripture for those years, been a student of the text for those years. One thing that I've learned about my pursuit in following Jesus is that the more I grow close to Jesus and the more I learn about Jesus, the more I'm asked to change my life in conformity to his. And that is a truth in biblical formation that you will find if you journey with Jesus and take it serious for any part of your life. You will find that your life is actually being reduced and his life is actually being exemplified in and through you. We are constantly called as followers of Jesus to examine our own ways and submit those to the will and the ways of Jesus, which often looks like when I want to be selfish— and I want to be prideful, and I want to, you know, boast in myself, I must submit those things to the way and the will of Jesus. I must walk humbly and, um, and, and with gratitude and thanksgiving and, and, and the ways of the kingdom. And, and, uh, and this isn't new to the first followers of Jesus. The first followers of Jesus were people that um, decided to surrender to a person named Christ, uh, Jesus the Christ. Uh, and I have this in your notes here. They surrendered to Jesus the Christ 
as Lord, and I use that word the Christ intentionally because that is not a surname, that is a title that is given to Jesus because he is seen as the messianic king. He is the Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. And as they do that, they are pardoned of their sins against the kingdom of God. Hear me out here. This is, as, as, and, and you can, this is in your notes and you can kind of reflect on this later. But the reality is, is that when we say, Jesus, you will be my king and Lord, which means that I must ask for forgiveness for the ways in which I have acted against you and your kingdom. And as I'm, I'm invited into the kingdom of God and the reality of a relationship with Jesus and what he's doing on this earth. And I now am a part, like uh, the prodigal sons and daughters, I'm returned back into the family by the Father. And I begin a journey at that point to live as a son or daughter of the king and he involves us into his kingly activities this is the the vision in genesis chapter one that we are image bearers that we were created to be separate in our identity from all the other creation and we were invited into partnership with the creator to help steward his new creation and so all of this is really about an invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God. And, the, and, and so as people did this, as people surrendered and said, Jesus will be my Lord and he will be my king, which means now I'm a part of a different kingdom. They were already living in a kingdom, the Roman Empire, but they're saying of themselves that I will be separate from that kingdom. I will do things different. I will submit to the way of my new king and what he asks of me. And these communities, these what, uh, what I call, like call kingdom communities were popping up all over the ancient world. More and more people were saying yes to this. Yes, I will, I will follow the way of Jesus. Yes, I will be a part of his kingdom. Yes, I will make him my Lord and king and submit my life to his way and these were popping up and 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 the 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 right word is church churches were popping up everywhere but but the the problem with church is that it invokes a lot of, of uh, things in our imagination and and sometimes not good things when we say church the word church what these were these were kingdom communities these were many edens these were many heaven on earth uh, collection of people where image bearers are being renewed and transformed by the power of Jesus to now introduce heaven on earth. They were taking very literally the prayer that Jesus told them to pray. Pray that the kingdom of heaven comes down into earth. And they were doing that. There were many Edens popping up all over the place. And one of those many Edens was in a city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a support city north of Athens in Greece. And this was a popular metropolitan area, had lots of different cultures a part of it, as most port cities did, because they, they had a lot of sea travel that would come in there, and a lot of people would make, take their residence there. It was a Greco-Roman city, uh, which means it was infused with um, uh, uh, the, the Greece worship of gods and, and, and their, their pantheon of gods. And then as, as the Roman Empire, 
empire conquered the known world, they would introduce on top of their gods, uh, uh, the gods of Greece and their pantheon, they'd introduce their own gods. They worshiped the Caesars as God. And so it was just kind of this melting pot of culture that existed. Uh, and uh, it's known that a, 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 really la- a really large Jewish synagogue existed in this city. So there was a large population of the, 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 the Jewish people and their culture that was a part of the city too. So it was just a melting pot of culture and civilization. And we're told about a time that a guy named Paul went to visit this city for the first time. This is told in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 tells of a story that Paul on his second missionary journey, so he's on his second missionary work, he, he ends up in Thessalonica. And uh, while he's there, it's eight verses long in, in uh, Acts chapter 17. Only eight verses long. Not a long story, but it's a powerful story that sets up what we're about to talk about. So we've got to do a little history here. What's going on? In Acts chapter 17, Luke tells us about a story of the time when Paul and Silas go visit this city. And the first thing they do is they go to the Jewish synagogue that exists there. And uh, this is what Paul would normally do. Anytime Paul would visit a city, he would start in the Jewish synagogues. He would spend a couple days teaching there. And then he would take his message out to the broader people groups and, and share Jesus with them. And so uh, Luke tells us that he, he did this. And good news, lots of people started believing the message of Jesus. A lot of people started trusting Jesus as their Lord and their king. And so this is good news. And we're like, yeah, this is great. And, and, and Luke gives us even another detail on top of this. He says a lot of uh, Greek men also trusted in Jesus. And then he says, and a lot of prominent women. And I love that about Luke. He always just gives us this tidbit of information. If you're familiar with Luke's gospel, he's always featuring women as a prominent key figures in the ministry of Jesus. He's the only one that tells us that it was, it was widows that uh, supported uh, financially Jesus as he would travel. You know, Jesus and his team had to eat. They, they had to find places to stay. And the people that actually supported that ministry, Luke tells us, was the women uh, paid for Jesus to be able to go and travel. So Luke is always doing this. And I love that little detail in there. He tells us that a lot of prominent women started following uh, the way of Jesus. And so this is a powerful thing that's happening. Well, as the story goes, and oftentimes does when Paul enters the city, things don't go well for very long because we're told that um, there were a few uh, in this Jewish community that didn't like what Paul was preaching. Uh, and, uh, and so what they decided to do is they went out to the marketplace and they began to incite uh, a riot against Paul and Silas. Um, this is a, one of the fun times where archaeology and um, history and the Bible um, all kind of come together. This is an image up here that, that uh, um, has been uncovered, showed up here. This is the marketplace that's been uncovered in, in Thessalonica. Um, this, is, this is literally the place in Acts chapter 17 that it says the Jews went out into the, into the city courts and began to incite a riot against Paul and Silas. That's where that happened. Like, that's fun. That's fun. It's beautiful. So what happens is they go into this place, and, and, and it's kind of hard to tell what's what, but, but this is the area in that city that um, a riot was started against Paul and Silas. And so the, the story goes on to say that they, they, they get a bunch of people, and they're, and they're all super ticked at what Paul and Silas are doing. And so they go to where um, Paul and Silas were staying. They were staying at a guy named Jason's house. Now, I love it when the Bible gives me an easy name to say, Jason, right? 
doesn't happen a lot, but, but we can say Jason together and it's all good. So, um, but they stay at a guy named Jason's house. And so this riot, this mob goes to Jason's house and they're looking for Paul and Silas. He's like, bring them out. We're, we're gonna, we're, you know, we're gonna stop this right now. Jason's like, they're not here. You see, Paul and Silas had already gone into hiding at this point. They, they heard what was going on. So, so Jason's like, they're not here. And so the, the riot that these people are so upset, they just go, well, then we'll just take you. And so they grab Jason and a couple of his friends out of their house, drag them out of their house, and they take them to the city officials. And when they stand before the city officials, the story goes, the, the officials are like, what's going on here? What's the, what's the big deal? What's the problem? And they start saying, yeah, Paul and Silas, they are known of going to all these cities and causing trouble. And they ask, what, what, what kind of trouble are they causing? And this is, this is what really jumps out. The accusation against Paul and Silas is that they are preaching that Jesus is king and not Caesar. You see, if I, you know, if I lived back then and I were to say Jesus is my king, I'm immediately saying that someone else is not. Caesar is not. This is the reality that the early Christians faced. When they said Jesus is king and I live in his kingdom and the reality of his kingdom is here and now, you are immediately, you're immediately acting in treason and insurrection. And this caused fear and panic amongst early Christians. The kind of fear and panic that lasted almost 300 years. Persecution against Christians because they were disrupting the culture and the life of the people. Now, the Romans and, and the Greeks and this, this culture, they were not afraid of a new religion. Listen, they had a pantheon of gods. And for them, it would have just been just as easy to say, oh, Jesus is another god amongst our gods. And that's, if you want to worship your god, I don't care. Like, like everybody has gods. Worshiping gods is known. The, the idea of Christianity wasn't a threat. What was a threat was what it meant to be in the kingdom of Jesus. Because to submit to the will and the way of Jesus in this world meant you can't do something that everyone does. And that's worship other gods. You were forbidden as a follower of Jesus to have false idols and to worship other gods. Now this disrupts something very, very Primitive in any community and culture, when you begin to disrupt the way of, of communities existing and living together and start doing your own thing, it disrupts the commerce because now these Christians aren't going to the temples and buying idols. It disrupts sacrificial systems because they're not, they're not participating in festivals that would have been common for community and relational building. They're, they're seen as outsiders. Non-Christian authors write about Christians calling them atheists because they don't believe in the gods. So it causes all sorts of problems, and this is what the accusation is. They're, they're frustrated. They're say, and right or wrong, they take Jason and his friends, and they say, they're, worship, they're saying that, that Jesus is king, which Caesar is not. They're committing treason. So... Paul and Silas are in hiding, and during this, they take off, and they go 50 miles southwest to a city called Berea, and they set up camp there. 
And you can read that story from verse 9 on. But what happens to Jason and his friends is that they get tried, they get taken to prison, and then they're forced to pay bail to make bond to get out of prison. So they got to, like in our systems now, they got to pay to get out, right? And that's what's happening. And that's all we know of, of, of this situation from here on out. What we learn later is that Paul, when he's out and about, he's, he's worried and curious what happened to the followers of Jesus that he left behind. So he sends Timothy, his friend, co-worker, back to Thessalonica to check in on the Christians that were left there. Timothy comes back to Paul and reports back to him and says, hey, you know, they're doing great. Good news. They're thriving in the midst of their suffering and persecution. They're actually holding to their faith and standing firm. And this blesses Paul so much that he's compelled to write them a letter. And in your New Testaments, that is the letter 1 Thessalonians. This letter, most scholars believe, was the first and earliest letter that Paul wrote. Dated somewhere around in the 50s, 80. And Paul is so blessed and encouraged, he writes them this beautiful letter. And in this letter, there's all sorts of good nuggets because he's talking about he's encouraging them he's giving thanks for them he's so encouraged he's saying i'm so thankful for you he's 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 encouraging them he's trying to support them he's trying to give them direction at one point in the letter paul talks about um the the people that have died there he says that to those who have fallen asleep right and that was that was a, a word that was used uh to indicate death because both the Jewish community and the Christian community believed in a resurrection. So they wouldn't say dead because dead was final. They would say they'd fallen asleep and because they believed they would be awakened again. And so he says, to those who have fallen asleep, and, that, and that's, that's a term there that Paul uses where he's, he's indicating that there have been Christians who have possibly died because of their faith in Jesus. And those who are left behind are concerned and worried because Think about it. They, they believe in a Jesus and his kingdom and the reality of his kingdom, but yet the people around them are dying? Where's Jesus at? Where, where, wait a minute. I mean, I think the closest that, that we can think of is when we experience tragedy in our own lives and we go, where is Jesus at in that? What, what's happening, God? Wait a minute. I thought you were king. I, I thought you were Lord. I thought, what's going on? And so Paul is in trying to give them encouragement on how to stand firm. And he talks about how their hope is in a future resurrection. And they talk, he talks about how the return of Jesus is imminent and it's going to happen. And to put their hope and trust and vision in that. And then he wraps up the letter. He wraps up the letter with this. He says, and this is where we get to the end. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, uh, Always rejoice. Never stop praying, and everything give thanks. This is what God desires for you. Depending on your English translation, you, you may have a variation of that, but essentially that's, that's what it is. It's always rejoice, he says. Never stop praying, and in everything, give thanks. This is what God desires for you. And we're left going, in everything? And everything? But God, what does it look like when my family is not healthy and I am not healthy? And everything? What does it look like when I don't have a roof over my head? 
like so many do. And everything? What does it look like when I don't have enough food to eat? Like so many are experiencing around the world. And everything? Do I give thanks? Paul, what in the world? When my friends are dying simply because they think Jesus is Lord and want to live his way on this earth in everything? So Paul is hitting on something that runs deeper than a superficial kind of like, hey, just be happy all the time. He's writing to a group of people that are in the midst of suffering and struggle, trying to remain faithful in the midst of the doubt and uncertainty that they're faced with. And I'm sure none of us can relate to that. What does it mean, Paul? There are hints all over in this this passage here. Being thankful in all circumstances happens when you have vision outside of your own circumstance and can see the hope and light of Jesus around you. In chapter 5, he talks a lot about this idea that we are, we are people of the light, that, that we are in the light in hopeful anticipation for the return of Jesus. Paul is trying to get them to redirect themselves into a reality of keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus. How can I have hope in the midst of trial and suffering is when I am able to realign my vision not to what's in front of me, but what's before me in Jesus. Paul goes on to say in uh, Philippians, just uh, a city just north of uh, Thessalonica, he, he says this. He says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. You hear that? The Lord is near. Um. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let your, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. The peace of God. With everything, give thanks. And the peace of God. What peace? What does that look like? What Paul's trying to do is that there's something that powerful happens within us, that when we're in a circumstance, the biblical vision for gratitude and thankfulness, how we can do this in all circumstances, is when we take our vision off of our circumstances and fix them on Jesus and something powerful happens in that moment peace begins to enter our hearts and minds and I can't explain that but I can tell you a quick story about that about a time I experienced this just very recently and then we're going to wrap up um I share this story not that I believe that this is something that everyone experiences in the same way, same fashion, or same manner. So I'm hesitant to share this. Um, but as I was driving in this morning and I was thinking through the sermon in my head, God put this story in my head. And so I'm, I'm just going to try to be faithful and share it. Um, this last June, my brother um, um, overdosed and died. Um, he had a lifelong battle uh, in addiction. And um, he um, was doing okay for a little bit, came out of rehab, and, um, but then relapsed, and they found him dead in a Walmart parking lot in his car alone. Um, many of you know, know this, that, that, that I experienced this, and, and I had a lot of kind, kind words shared to me and, and love and support from this church community. Um, and, um, but when it happened, I went into fix-it mode. Um, 
because that's just a part of who I am. I just go into, okay, what do I need to do to make things happen? So my dad and I drove um, to Portland to, to take care of my sister-in-law, um, to take care of the three kids, um, to take care of arrangements. I get there, and um, no one in my family knows what to do in these scenarios. Um, and a byproduct of being a pastor is that I've dealt with death and what to do in these scenarios. And so um, um, I had to call the coroner's office and, and arrange the belongings from his body. I had to go, and my mind was just in work mind. I'd go get his car from the, the parking lot um, and um, did all the, the work right? We had to find a venue to do a service, had to prepare the service, had to execute the service. I went an entire week that I was there, and I was just in work mode the whole time. People would ask me, how you doing? I said, I'm okay. Just making things happen. Okay, just making things happen. Got to take care of people. Got to take care of people. Take, take care of people. And the last night, the funeral was over. It was the last night. Everybody was going home the next morning. We all go convene on my, my brother's house to just family, just to be together. And, uh, and we share, share time together, tell stories. And when I left the house, I walk out the door. Um, and um, after a week long of just carrying the weight of everything and knowing that this would probably be the last time I, I'd go through in this way, like I'm, I'm done, I don't have to work anymore. Um, the amount of grief that came up came upon me was so heavy that I just collapsed in the driveway. My daughter and my wife had to catch me as I fell to the ground, and I just started sobbing. I hadn't cried once. I'm not a crier, typically. And I just could not stop. And it lasted for probably two hours. Got me in the car, drove back to the Airbnb, walked inside. I saw my mom, should have already gone to the Airbnb. Saw my mom, collapsed again, and we just held each other. Um, we drove home, we got home, it was that next week, and, um, and I was so heavy inside. I was cloudy. I, I tried to do my job, and I open up spreadsheets, and like what would take me two seconds to put a formula together to make something happen in a spreadsheet, I, I would just sit there looking at the screen for 10 minutes. Like I couldn't think about what to do. The grief was, and I just, I, finally I, I just told Janice, I can't, I don't even know what to do right now. So I just got up away from my desk and I, I just sat on the back porch the rest of the day and I just stared. Next, next day, same thing, heavier heavier. I wasn't sleeping, and it just, the grief was, it was like this sitting on my chest. The third day comes along, same thing. It's Wednesday now, and I, and I can't think. I can't act. I can't, and I just find myself randomly crying through the day. A Led Zeppelin song comes on, and that's my brother, and I just would start crying. He loved Zeppelin. Just, it was, it was a weight. Wednesday night, Thursday morning, sometime. Again, I wasn't sleeping. And um, in a second, it just hit me as I was laying in bed. Just, I hadn't even talked to Jesus about this yet. It's been a week and a half. And I hadn't even talked to Jesus about what I'm feeling. 
So I got out of bed. I went to the living room. It was like 2, 3 in the morning sometime. I don't remember, but I put on some worship music in the living room. Just had some worship music praying. And then I just let it out. I mean, I was saying things to God that I shouldn't say from the stage. Wouldn't be appropriate. I was mad. I was sad. I would say things and I'd start crying. And I would, God, what? what? And I'd start crying. And then I would sit and listen to the music. And then I would, and this went on for like an hour. And I'm laying on the ground. Like I'm laying. I'm crying. <laughs> and then I hear what I, wasn't audible, but I just hear the voice of God. Again, I'm, it wasn't an audible thing. It was just, I heard God say to me, are you ready for me to take it now? I said, yes. And in that moment, no lie, it was like that weight just got lifted off my chest. And I could breathe. And all of a sudden, thoughts started flooding in my brain like they usually do. And all of a sudden, I'm being renewed. And I get up. And then I went to work in my office. And I worked a few more hours. And Lydia gets up. And she comes out. She's getting ready for school. And she's like, look at him. And she goes, Dad, you look different. No lie. I said, yeah, I feel different. The peace of God came upon me. As I went to him in prayer, and realigned my vision to him, took it all and gave it to him, the peace of God came upon me. Joella, you can come up. In all circumstances, well, let me say this. Too many people want to live and look at the world and celebrate that it's burning. The people of God who live in his kingdom and are trying to conform to his way and his will need to be the people of God that even though things may burn around us, we can realign our vision on him and give thanks. In all circumstances, we can give thanks. We can be thankful when we set our eyes on Jesus and not what happens to us or around us. And that doesn't mean that things aren't hard. It was hard to go through what I went through. And I've, there are other stories in my life. It's not the only hard thing I've gone through. Um, but trust me when I say, when you set your eyes on Jesus in full surrender to him, his spirit and his life-giving presence comes upon you and gives you peace. I'm not saying go home, put on worship music and do... you you got to find your way to do that. Like that was just the way I did it. That's not a methodology that, that I'm prescribing everyone follow. But it was just the process of me putting and setting my eyes on Jesus and not my circumstance and the heart, the heartache and brokenness that I was feeling. So how can we realign ourselves to the biblical vision of gratitude and thankfulness? Um, well, we have to recognize 
in ourselves what maybe causes us to not do that, um, not fix our eyes on Jesus. In your sermon notes, Jenny talked a little bit about this. I put a little quiz in your sermon notes. Um, And during our communion time, I'm going to ask you to read over it, maybe even fill it out if you want and try to to do it. Um, But this is something that maybe you can take home with you and spend some time working through. If you're part of a home group here at Real Life, it's going to be the group guide for this week is to work through these questions and reveal and share with your community of people that love you what you're going through, what you're thinking. But it's a little quiz. And so during our communion time, if our uh, communion helpers would come up, if you didn't grab communion on your way in this morning, I encourage you to, to as they walk their way back, to grab grab one, lift your hand, let them know that you need one. They'll get one to you. And just for a moment, I'm just going to take a, a minute. I know, I know I'm past the hour, but I'm going to take a minute, give you a moment to read through and to think about this and maybe score yourself and think about the implications of what you're scoring and, and how gratitude, what role gratitude plays in your life. And so I would just take a minute and take a look at that and reflect on what's been said this morning.